We could benefit by using real-world examples and allow the curricula and the students to take on those issues head-on. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hi, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Today we're speaking with Michael Nettles, and he's the Senior Vice President and the Edmund W. Gordon Chair of ETS's Policy Evaluation and Research Centre. He's done an incredible amount of research, has an incredible CV as well, including all sorts of different appointments, including one by President Barack Obama, who appointed Michael to the President's Advisory Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans. He serves on multiple boards and has a really significant amount of, uh, well, of experience. He also has a PhD in education from Iowa State University and is a fellow of multiple Salzburg Global Programs, which is where we are recording this particular podcast. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. Indeed. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Fantastic. Maybe just to start us off, give us a bit of a sense of why you're passionate about education generally, and then also how that's taken you into this specific field around social and emotional learning. Yeah. I think education is one of the most important um, activities uh, in society. It's not always the lead story in newspapers, but very often what is the lead story is associated with education. Um, And what I've found uh, to be, um, you know, important in the U.S. is that uh, education is associated with quality of life. And the more people have education, the higher the quality of life. And I also think that very often, not always, we have lots of work to do, but very often it uh, removes ignorance and um, divisions uh, between and among people and groups of people. So I think um, education is certainly valuable. um, And I think globally, uh, there's a great deal of work to do to to ensure access to it. Absolutely. Well, give us a sense of, because of course there's access to education and then there's access to quality education, of course, and what does quality really mean? And so one question that I have, um, and that sticks with me as an educator, is what does quality education really mean at a global level? What kind of elements are emerging as really core parts of what education needs to become? And obviously social and emotional learning, also known, aka 21st century skills, aka soft skills, aka basic skills, um, tra- you know, transversal skills. There's lots of different terms out there. Give us a sense of your perspective from your work on where they sit into a quality education. Yeah, I think uh, quality is um, certainly important in education. And the way I think about it um, is that I I go back to the tradition of people communicating with each other. Um, And I think the highest quality of education is the ultimate form of great communication. So I think the delivery systems uh, have something to do with it, but I think also the most important delivery system is uh, human beings, so great teachers. Uh, committed teachers, 
people who are committed parents as teachers. Uh, and it's all about trying to convey uh, the best of the world and the best information and knowledge that we have. Of course, it varies by field. You know, what represents high-quality education and um, literacy training may be different uh, from mathematics, physics, sciences. But I think the common denominator among all of those fields is, is communication and having the highest form of it. What do you see as the greatest challenge for education systems around the world in, in trying to move us towards that idea of having graduates that are great communicators? And that means communicating with themselves as well, being very self-aware, being able to engage in kind of self-regulation. Um, what's the biggest challenge for us at the moment? I think the biggest challenge has to do with resources. Um, you know, when you look at how countries spend money, how communities spend money, how nations invest in uh, teaching and learning and education, uh, it tells you an awful lot about what we have to uh, have as a major challenge. Um, I mean, we probably spend much more on uh, war, or as some people call it defense, than we do on education. And, uh, and I think so one of the biggest challenges is to get governments, whether it's at the local, state, or national level, mm -hmm. to place education at the top of its agenda. Yeah. Of course, you know, food and nutrition and some of the basic needs are in water safety and are big concerns, and they have to be at the top of the agenda, but certainly education should be among the uh, top five items in uh, government budgets and in, in you know, strategies. Mm. It's amazing. Um, I recently discovered that we could feed the world globally for an entire year with two days of global military spend. Uh, so that shows one of the challenges in terms of where we place our resources and what we prioritize as well uh, at an economic and a political level. Yeah. And I think, you know, the return on that investment, it would be immense if you go to some of the you know, most destitute and desolate places in the world and you find that people are not, unable to sustain themselves and yet they're living in places that have great natural resources, uh, the potential for sustainable development of, uh, of resources and food and everything. So I think education is, just, is you know, globally important for, for those reasons too. Mm, absolutely. What's, uh, what's your end game kind of in education? Well, speak to us a little bit about the work that you do at the moment with, yeah. with assessment in particular and, and evaluation. And, and what's the goal in trying to, to move that space a little bit? Because of course the old maxim is, you know, what's measured is treasured, as we've heard. You know, we value what we measure. Um, how can we utilize kind of those, the idea of assessment as kind of a way to catalyze change in education? Yeah, assessment is uh, is important. I mean, I think it's important that we always set goals and then measure progress. So if you, that's the way I think about assessment is that we have targets that we want to meet, whether it's literacy, numeracy, uh, any field um, that you can think of. Um, if we make an investment in of uh, time and resources. 
then occasionally we ought to take um, stock of what we're accomplishing. And that's the way, that's my idea of the best assessment. The challenge for us is that we have uh, the same instruments uh, for a variety of population groups. Some are really disadvantaged. And the way we uh, use the assessment results very often is ranking and rating and not enough of using them to improve. Mm -hmm. So we have a huge challenge to try to connect assessment to um, educational improvement. Mm -hmm. So I spend much of my time using uh, assessment data along with other data and information to try to identify ways that we can improve. Uh, and so, and, and very often, uh, the assessment data provide an, a useful element, but there are many other factors, um, such as effort, <laughs> interest, mm -hmm. um, availability, accessibility of education. Yeah. And uh, all of those are correlates mm. of uh, achievement uh, and scores on our assessments. And uh, as much attention as we give to developing assessments and administering them, we should give equal attention, if not more, to some of those correlates. And that's, that's much of what I spend time focusing on. Can you give us one tangible example, perhaps, Michael, around what is one way that we can look at one of those elements in terms of talking about effort or talking about a, a disposition or a habit of mind or character trait, perhaps, and, and try to and empower, really, learners to be more self-aware about their particular current ability, current level in that area? Yeah. So I think um, this, is, this is a very good question because I think what we have now is an opportunity to vary our assessments, to look at how people deliver or exhibit their talents in different ways, different modes. Um, the technology allows us to do that, you know, current technology. 20 years ago, we were confined to paper pencil uh, assessments, multiple choice types of assessments. Now we can use much more performance-oriented assessments and uh, more efficiently. We can deliver assessments through the internet. Uh, now there's still much work to do, but we have that uh, opportunity now to do that, uh, the potential to do that. Now, one tangible example of how assessment can be uh, used is uh, if you think about uh, scores on a traditional standardized test, and if you think about um, it being able to examine uh, the relationship or uh, of, let's just say, demographic characteristics, uh, economic characteristics that are associated with the assessment scores. It allows us to intervene. It allows us to think about the relationship and how to change it because we, can, we have opportunity to compare it. I think one of the biggest um, drivers in uh, the assessment results that we see all over the world is economics. There's a strong relationship between uh, people's 
um, and communities' well-being and their performance on our assessments. We call this the postcode lottery in Australia, and I imagine the zip code lottery. Yeah. In some ways, it still is a very, well, as you say, such a strong determinant of educational outcome, and that's hugely problematic. If we want to create a world where there's equity and where people succeed and we can capitalise on talent, whatever level that talent um, and where that talent might come from. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Well, what kind of advice um, do you provide at a really high level to policymakers, for example, around some of the shifts that they can, they can really integrate into their, their reform agenda um, about ensuring that we are using data and we're using it in really strategic ways that actually enables, enables us all to, um, well, en enables, frankly, that reform to be, to get that return on investment that you've discussed, because of course we know that this, the right strategic reforms really just deliver a significant economic benefit, but also a positive social benefit. Yeah, the policymakers uh, today, as they have always, uh, had a major role to play in educational improvement and access. What I think policymakers are most challenged by is their conflict, their potential conflict of interest around education and providing education. So uh, what I've been spending a lot of time doing is thinking about ways that we can eliminate um, the conflict that policymakers have in in allocating resources, especially to places that, ha that are disadvantaged. I'll give you an example. If you think about poor communities in the US, in Australia, any place, um, there's still an awful lot of um, resources, money being spent. And if you think about the school systems that are operating in those communities, even if they're underfunded, they're sp still spending a lot of money. And they have, uh, sometimes you have to look at the quality of education in those communities and ask yourself, who is this school system serving? Is it serving the interest of the students or is it serving the interest of the vendors, uh, the businesses that are operating around it, uh, the food service and, and so on? Uh, uh, the suppliers, the utilities, and all of the, the mechanisms that are you know, uh, used by the school community. So policymakers need to think about ways to capture some of those resources. Mm. Um, whether it's banks, particularly banks, financial institutions, very often you can see uh, those institutions having surpluses that are enormous, the bonuses of the people who are there. Yeah. Uh, so policymakers have to really begin to think about how to not penalize necessarily the providers, but to ensure that the communities that are feeding them are getting wealthy as well, Benefiting not just sustaining, uh, you know, some kind of level operational, um, you know, existence and function, but rather improving. And so I think. Um, that we have su substantial data to help with that. And so what we've been trying to do is to think about how to get policymakers to, to do that. Of course, the places that I'm talking about, the corporations, the businesses, are supporting the policymakers, you know, especially the elected public officials. 
um, through their, you know, because it's very expensive to get mm. to those offices. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is, when we look around the world, often when long-term educational policy is put in place, uh, it's because somehow there's been a depoliticization of the policies themselves for education. Finland, is, of course, is a very good example of this, and we had Oli Pekka here this week um, talking about that. Uh, what's your insight in the way that we can kind of create such a compelling case that really it doesn't matter who's in government, but there is, that there is this kind of ongoing movement and march really towards a more equitable um, access to a quality of, of education? Yeah, we have some examples. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll use the U.S. Uh, as an example. We have a U.S. Department of Education, and um, and we also have Health and Human Services. And there are two uh, programs that are sacrosanct uh, in those departments. So regardless of who's elected, um, these two programs exist. And they are actually aimed to serve the disadvantaged. For us, one of those programs in Health and Human Services is called Head Start. Uh, and the one in the U.S. Department of Education is a student financial aid, particularly Pell Grants. Right. Now, what's happened, though, is that, uh, so regardless of who's elected, mm -hmm. who's in office, they are funding and directing policies that affect how much money goes into those operations and how much the actual communities get. Right. The, draw, the, the, the challenge is to ensure that those communities are getting more and more and that their programs are improving. And that doesn't happen enough. Instead, what the policymakers wind up doing is trying to address critics of those initiatives through additional policies. And uh, one example is that the, the Pell Grant program and the student financial aid program now is more loan than it is grants. Ah, so the students are getting huge debt burdens, yeah. uh, graduating from college, unable to pay the debt, so they're defaulting, and the policymakers are not really uh, actively addressing that. We have so many distractions. Mm. Uh, the Head Start program, for example, there's, it's been in existence for over 50 years, and yet now we're just beginning to see an increase in the expectation of, of the teacher credential <laughs> to the point that you know the teacher needs to have a bachelor's degree. Up to this point, policymakers have allowed that to to go on with uh, without ensuring quality in the education realm. So it sounds like some some significant challenges in that space, the policy and the political space. Um, coming now to kind of the idea of social emotional learning, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we go from here? Yeah, I'm. I'm really optimistic about it. Um, now I'm, I'm saying that, knowing that it's going to be a great deal of work. Um, sure. uh, you know, social and emotional learning is uh, associated with uh, people's, you know, uh, personal improvement, uh, their interest in altruism, 
their interest in improving their communities, uh, their their own opportunities. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I don't think we have a choice. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> so I think we, we have to, to be, um, you know, assertive about this uh, in every uh, uh, in every way and I and I'm especially encouraged now that employers are seeing uh, the value of social and emotional skills um, and uh, and I think that's going to help us and I think if if we can now get governments to expect us to measure it, as you say, what we measure is what we treasure, mm. uh, and uh, you know, if, it, it, then I think we'll we'll see some real progress. So, I'm optimistic, and I and I and I think that once we can get it codified into policy, we'll uh, we'll see some great improvements. Um, that's fantastic, Michael. Give us your final insight here in terms of what are some take-home messages, of course. There's so much out there. I mean, even within just this field, there are so many different phrases and terms around what it is we're trying to define and measure, et cetera. Um, what kind of things do you want to resonate, um, be it at the policy level or at the, at the classroom level, at the community level, around this particular body of work and this idea of evolving education towards you know, a space where young people have content knowledge, but they also have the skills that they need to thrive? Yeah, I, th I think... Um one takeaway for me uh, is that I realize that um, in the curricula there's a great deal of power and potential. If we can, if we can ensure that schools, um, colleges, and universities have within their core curricula course, courses that are uh, centered around uh, social and emotional learning, and I think one takeaway here from this seminar is that we could benefit by using real-world examples uh, of atrocities, of corruption, uh, and, and, and allow the curricula and the students to take on those issues head-on, to learn not just that they exist, but the effect of them. And I think if we can do that globally, that we have the potential to improve societies. So I'm, um, that's one takeaway. I have to develop it a lot more in my, my own mind. But having had discussions with people who live in different environments, who are facing um, turmoil uh, and you know, some really uh, difficult circumstances, uh, and how little perhaps people in well-off places in the world are not exposed to that in such a way that would um, allow them to make a commitment to do something about it. And uh, so that's, uh, that's what I hope for out of this meeting. Fantastic. Uh, Michael, wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luca. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.